0: Well, we did start a uh, study of the book of uh, Revelation last week. It's the last book of the Bible. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures with you or your electronic device or something, I always encourage you to turn and uh, follow along as we're there so you can make notes and all that good stuff. It's not sacrilegious to write in your Bibles, by the way. Uh, so if uh, there's pens available for you, if you want to take some notes uh, in your Bibles even uh, as you... Uh, listen and go along. Uh, feel free to do that. Here's the uh, the ground rules that we laid, right, as we started Revelation, because what we know is the book of Revelation has been approached in many different ways and stirred all kinds of conversation, and maybe you've resisted reading it because you don't like all of the imagery and stuff that's in it. Uh, maybe uh, you have been made over-fixated on it, as some have. Um, and uh, so we here's the ground rules we're approaching it with. Is First of all, we want to note all of the various genres that are Uh, In in the midst of Revelation, today we'll see that it is actually a letter um, that was given to seven churches, regions of the area in that day. We'll look at that today, Um, and uh, we will interpret it in accordance with the rest of Scripture. Um, One of the things that some people have done that is absolutely... um, Something we should not do is uh, they just get all excited, about so just read Revelation and read it outside of the context of realizing it's part of the whole story of the Word of God. So we have to read it uh, by interpreting it through the lens of the rest of Scripture, so we will do that, and we will keep our focus on Jesus, Uh, the uh, the title of our series, Jesus Reigns, and this is, uh, as verse 1 tells us, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, It was about Jesus. It is a revelation from Jesus. The father gave it to the son who revealed it to John through an angel. And so uh, it is about Jesus. It is from Jesus. And so we will keep our focus on Jesus in the midst of it. And then uh, we will avoid getting too specific, uh, trying to decode some of the symbolism and imagery and all of that. We want to be careful of how far we go with that. We want what God has for us, but we also want to be mindful we're not sitting here trying to read all of current events into uh, the testimony of the Revelation. And uh, our conclusion as we go through it, over these next several weeks, will be we want to be informed and encourage followers of Christ. The Scripture is given to us to encourage us. Uh, blessed are the ones who read it. Uh, the Word tells us here in verse 3, as well as those who hear it and... Are careful to do what it says. And so there's something for us to be actively engaged in as we study the revelation. Uh, and so that is our goal in the midst of it. So let's pick up in verse 9. We studied the first eight verses last week. Let's pick up in verse 9 in which we see John further this kind of uh, manner of, of helping us understand this is a letter. And so he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So we're going to pause right there and unpack this a little bit. John gives this introduction, which what do you do when you write a letter? You introduce yourself, right? You describe who you are, who's writing. So he's saying, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, Uh, This John, we believe, is the Apostle of Jesus. There are some other theories out there as to other Johns that uh, we know of. John the Elder is one of those uh, that's referred to as a possibility, but I think the evidence seems clear that it points to John the Apostle of Jesus, uh, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the one who wrote the the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and his ministry area uh, was in Ephesus. And uh, the city of Ephesus, and that was in the region called Asia Minor, or else otherwise we could call it Little Asia is what that refers to. Uh, So we have a picture for you of that area of the world. Uh, It's a portion of the continent of Asia that sticks out into the Aegean Sea. Uh, It's got the the Black Sea to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the south, but the Aegean Sea there to the west. Uh, And so it's this peninsula area. And uh, the roads there, the brown, are the Roman roads of the day. If you can see it, I know it's difficult, but the, uh, the black docks circled in green there, those are the seven cities that are mentioned uh, in this book of Revelation that we will uh, see what the specific message to them were over the next few weeks. Um, but this was uh, the area that John ministered in, and so he was familiar with these churches that this letter addresses. Um, the uh, two circled areas there, the one on the inland there is uh, the mainland is at ephesus that 's where the city of Ephesus was, and then the circle area out in the uh, water is the island of Patmos, so that is where John was exiled to as he makes a note here that he was on the island. Of Patmos. So, for those of you that like geography and visual things, there you go. Okay? So, this is the area that we're talking about um, and uh, the significance of it. Uh, I have one other picture for you uh, from that island of Patmos. Um, and uh, one of our couples had a chance to visit Patmos uh, last year. And uh, so, they sent me this picture. This is a picture looking out from what is considered to be John's Cave, right? Uh, the historical site where John kind of resided. Uh, and on Patmos, you're not allowed to take pictures of the actual cave, but but this is a picture looking out from that cave. So, just again, give you some kind of context here. This is a real place. Uh, we're talking about real people. We're talking about a real time uh, in history. And so, John was on the island of Patmos. He uh, was there because the Roman Emperor Domitian had, uh, which all the emperors of Rome considered themselves uh, some kind of deity, but Domitian was one. Who carried that out in a way where he was persecuting uh, the church? He was—he was like, man, you worship me, and—and uh, and really none else. And so, uh, when um, the Christians uh, resisted calling him Lord, uh, that brought great persecution to them. And so, John, of course, did not worship. Uh, Domitian, he worshiped Jesus Christ alone, and uh, so instead of uh, killing him, uh, which maybe would embolden the other believers of the day, uh, they exiled him to Patmos. Uh, Some believe he was there for around a decade from the years 86 to 96 A.D., Uh, Others think that he was exiled later in Domitian's uh, reign, but whenever it was, he found himself on Patmos as he is recording this revelation that was given to him. So Patmos was a a penal island. It was an island where you were sent. Uh, It wasn't uh, deserted. It was inhabited. There was a temple to uh, the goddess Artemis there. Uh, There was a Roman gymnasium there, as they have found, but uh, so this isn't John, like, you know, this isn't a vacation island. This isn't John sitting under palm trees, uh, sipping on his coconut uh, juice and all that kind of stuff. This is, uh, this is John uh, in a hardship here of exile, um, and yet God uh, coming to him in the midst of that time. Why, why was he exiled? Well, he says right here, he gives us that reason, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Um, So he was exiled for preaching the gospel. He was exiled for believing in Jesus. He was exiled for having an allegiance to a king other than uh, the emperor. Uh, And so I want to pause here for a second because I think it's a good place for us to just do a little bit of introspection, ask ourselves a question. Is it, when is it, what suffering or disruption or inconvenience or denial or ridicule have you experienced because of testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there something in your life you would point to because of a bold faith where you'd say, boy, this is what has transpired for me. This is maybe not suffering. Maybe suffering is a bit too much, right? Because we've lived in a context where... um, for many years, Christianity has been well received, and we we do know that there have been some uh, uh, more recently that have certainly suffered because of their faith. Um, but but maybe it's not a suffering. Maybe it's a disruption, right? Maybe maybe you feel like you were wrongly uh, you know l- fired from a job because you of your faith. You think, but um, more of a disruption. Maybe it's an inconvenience. Maybe not even just. Maybe you consider it a convenience. What inconvenience has there been in your life? What have You chosen uh, that maybe has made life a little more challenging for you uh, to stand for the name of Christ. Um, What what denial you know? Somebody rejecting you. What ridicule have you received? So you just kind of go down through the list of of those things. Maybe they're in somewhat of a decreasing manner of of effect on our life. But the question is, what in what way has your testimony for Christ um, uh, influenced your life uh, to the point of of Suffering for it or experiencing some kind of hardship for it. John was exiled for his testimony. We know that many Christians in that day were killed for their faith. Uh, they were burned. They were slaughtered. They were fed to the lions in, in the Roman Colosseum and so on. They, they, because they stood for the name of Christ. Uh, we have believers today who stand for the name of Christ and suffer for it. Um, and I don't know if you've heard um, about Nigeria, uh, the country of Nigeria and West Africa, many Christians uh, being killed today um, by attacks from uh, the Islamic terrorist Boko Haram group and the Muslim Fulani herdsmen. And so um, we realize, boy, that that goes on today, uh, not in our context here locally, but but it does happen. And so we just pause, like, man, what... What have I experienced in my life as a, as a result of standing boldly for Christ? Um, just something for us to consider. And John here calls himself a brother and partner in the tribulation. Like, I'm in it with you, he's saying to these believers in these churches And uh, he's a partner in the kingdom, the work of God, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, a patient endurance that we are all called to as we wait for the time when God will make all things new. And John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit, that phrase, uh, John doesn't get any more specific than this, uh, whether this was a dream or a vision or whatever kind of state he was in when he received this revelation. We do know that the phrase in the Spirit is used in the scriptures uh, to reference the work of the Holy Spirit in different ways. We have the supernatural work of the Spirit in places like Ezekiel chapter 37 and Ezekiel's uh, familiar vision of the valley of dry bones. He says, uh, He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the first six verses, Paul's recounting kind of in third person his own experience in revelation of Jesus. He says, though there are, there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. In Christ, I was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, and so we see these kind of supernatural aspects of the Holy Spirit um, revealed to us in the phrase, in the Spirit. But we also see the common work of the Holy Spirit. Um, referenced in this way. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, uh, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia to Jerusalem. So we have kind of this common guidance of daily activity in the Spirit. Um, the Spirit uh, caused Paul to, to, to realize, I, I need to go through Macedonia to Jerusalem. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, in which we are called to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So this, again, common uh, work of the Spirit, all of us being in the Spirit of God, our position being in the Spirit as believers and the focus of our minds to be in the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 6.18, Paul says that he was praying at all times in the Spirit. Uh, and we too are called to do that, right? To be to have this effective power in our relationship with Christ um, in prayer. Um, so, so this, this as Paul describes or as John describes, is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's in the Spirit. We don't know exactly what it is. What we can know for sure is that the important point is knowing and trusting the source, which is the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and and so we we trust that. Um, and we'll see that as we go along. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Many conclude this is a reference to Sunday was John, you know, having this vision while he was worshiping on a Sunday. Um, we don't know exactly um, for sure that this is the only place that that particular phrase is used in the scriptures. Uh, at other points in Acts and Corinthians and so forth, we see that the believers gathered the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. Um That's why we gather on Sunday, but whether this was a Sunday for John, we can't be totally sure. But John says this, he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John heard a loud voice. That's normal for us. We hear voices, right? You're hearing my voice right now, but this voice had a bit of uniqueness to it. He says it was a loud voice like a trumpet, Uh, not an actual trumpet, but like a trumpet. Uh, This metaphor John uses to try and describe what he is hearing, what the voice was like. And so can we picture that kind of voice in our mind? The reason why metaphors are used is to give us some kind of word picture to help us understand. So what would a voice like a trumpet sound like? Uh, Maybe... The believers of the day, the Jewish believers in particular, were thinking of the shofar, the ram's horn that would be blown, right? And for multiple different reasons uh, in the nation of Israel. Perhaps they recalled Numbers chapter 10, in which God told Moses to make two silver trumpets. Um, one trumpet, when it was blown in that time, when one trumpet was blown, meant that they were to prepare to leave the camp. Uh, that they were going to be moving along in the wilderness. Uh, But if both trumpets were blown at the same time, these two silver trumpets, it meant that the people were to gather before the tent of meeting, the place where they met with God. And, uh, And so maybe they thought of this silver trumpet sound. Maybe that's what John was trying to describe. Maybe it was uh, trying to call attention and reminder to Exodus chapter 19 when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai ready to receive the Ten Commandments and listen to what happens here. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They were preparing to meet with God. And so whatever the trumpet sound was like, right, we see various trumpet sounds reflected on in the Scriptures as this kind of calling as the summoning of the people of God for a purpose. And so whatever the trumpet sound was like, John was about to have a a come to Jesus moment, right? Literally with Jesus himself. And so as he goes on to say here in verse 11, uh, this voice was saying, right? So this is a literal voice. Uh, This voice was saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so the voice tells John to write what he sees. This seems to be a literal message, right? Write what you see and send it to literal churches, literal people in various regions of Asia Minor, specific cities mentioned. And Some who interpret Revelation from a purely symbolic perspective, Uh, they view these churches not as literal churches or literal people, but they view them symbolically, meaning that they represent or depict seven periods of church history uh, instead of literal people. It seems best to me uh, to make a literal interpretation here, meaning that these seven churches uh, were literal churches in a specific time in history. The message was given to them. Revelation was written and, and communicated to them that then they would take and, and spread and share. Uh, they would have understood it in their time. And the reality of the Word of God by its nature, right, not only would they have understood it in their first century minds and context, but, but we can understand it today. It remains completely relevant in our time. Uh, We are not them, but yet we are, because in Christ, we share common truth with those who are distanced from us by time. And so, these seven churches, as we have noted, represent the fullness of the body of Christ. The number seven, as we talked about last week, uh, there is significance to numbers uh, at times in the scripture, sometimes numbers just are literally numbers, but, but at times they carry a further significance. And here the number seven often represents a sense of completion or of, of a finished state as we see even in the seven days of creation. And as I mentioned last week, I believe these seven churches represent uh, what is true of us as the fullness or the complete body of Christ uh, over time. So even though written to specific people in a specific time, the message is for us today as well. And so he's told to write down what he sees. And in verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. We don't see voices. We turn to see the one who's speaking that voice, right? Um, But he turns to see, and, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, these seven lampstands that he saw. We, uh, if you glance down to verse twenty in your scriptures, you read that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are used as a symbol uh, to represent the churches. Uh, lampstands we know were made of pure gold and placed in the holy place of the temple. It was the only light of the temple, and so the church is the light of Christ. In the world, and so it makes sense that lampstands would be used to represent the church in the world, the light of Christ. And in the midst of these lampstands was one like a son of man, John says. Now, this description is one of Jesus, and it speaks of both his humanity and his humility the time when He humbled Himself, as Philippians chapter 2 speaks of, when He took on a human nature to become like us. This description as the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, is like you and me. He walked among us. Uh, he had bodily form, and even after His resurrection, He retained uh, that form. Although Uh, becoming the mortal made immortal, right, Uh, eternal, Uh, still he was uh, noticed as Jesus. His disciples recognized him as Jesus even in his resurrected form. So this son of man is Jesus himself, Uh, and Jesus referred to himself as the son of man more than any other title when he referenced himself. Uh, And so Jesus walking among the lampstands, walking among the churches, if you will, as John saw. And this imagery of the Son of Man is also foretold in Daniel's vision. This is how we see some of the scripture come together in the various um, depictions of Christ and, and, uh, and prophecy. In Daniel chapter 7, when he had his vision, he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we see wonderful symmetry between uh, what Daniel saw in his vision and what John now sees in his vision the eternal, glorified Christ, uh, and that He is in the midst of the churches. Um, the, the, the beauty of the relationship of Christ and the church, right? The Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands. Uh, we read in Scripture that Jesus is the head of the church, uh, that uh, that the church is the bride of Christ. All of these images, depictions used to, to try and help us understand what is this relationship of, of Christ and the church. And so him walking amidst the lampstands, uh, revealing he is with us to the end of the age, as he promised uh, in Matthew chapter 28. So all of this comes out in this uh, first glimpse of what John saw. And then in verse 13, Uh, The Son of Man, he describes a little further, that he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, which we know nothing about. Uh, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So John trying to give to us some way of understanding what he is seeing, the one whom he is seeing. And again, very similar to the way that Daniel described what he saw in Daniel chapter 7. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool his throne was fiery flames his wheel its wheels were burning fire a stream of fire issued and came out from before him a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court sat in judgment and the books were opened and so we see again this wonderful symmetry between these visions and what is described, and really the depictions of, of his hair and his, and his features uh, really describing the intensity and the brilliance and the beauty and the power and the majesty of King Jesus here, right? The garments that he describes are those of a judge and a king, one with honor and authority, uh, his white hair as wool, as snow, the eternality. Uh, the ancient of days, right? The one existing from eternity past to eternity future. Uh, the eyes like a flame of fire. Fire in the word is described as the purifying element of judgment. Um, we see this at various places in the word, in First Corinthians three thirteen, and First Peter one seven, and so on. Um, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Um, the Old Testament, uh, it was the bronze altar in the temple uh, where the fire consumed the sin offering. And so we see this, this image of the bronze, the fire of his eyes of, of judgment. And, and so we, we, we see this coming together. And then his voice like the roar of many waters. Uh, how did he describe his voice just a bit ago? Like a trumpet, right? And now the voice is like the sound of of Roar, the roar of many waters. Picture yourself at the base of Niagara Falls or some you know tall waterfall. If you've ever been there, you know the deafening sound of that roar of the water, right? So much so you have to yell to try and even talk to each other. Just imagine that sound of his voice, an all-consuming, deafening sound that drowns out other voices. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. Again, we're told in verse 20, if you glance there, that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, We'll talk more about that next week, the angels. Uh, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What does that remind you of in the Word? Does that recall you to any scriptures? Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, In Ephesians 6, 17, when the armor of God is described, it is the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. And so this imagery of of the double-edged sword in his mouth, the Word of God that is being spoken uh, here to John. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Uh, The brightness, the brilliance of that, you can just imagine that and and it's like in uh, what we see in Matthew chapter 17 and verse two, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the time when Jesus was, was transfigured. And Peter, James and John were there, and, and, and Matthew records this, and he says that in that time, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Um, so we see the similarity of the description. And in Malachi chapter four, verse two. Uh, but for you who fear my name, he says, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and and so this uh, picture of 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 the the Son of Man, uh, what a glorious sight! Uh, this is our risen, exalted, glorified Christ, the one, the great High Priest and King over all, the Judge, right the one who will judge all, and in this we see uh, the way of judgment, all-consuming, all-revealing, the fire, the voice. Um, we see the method of judgment, the, the double-edged sword uh, in his mouth. Um, so we see all of this coming together in this image that John describes. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, and it can be something um, somewhat intimidating for us to try and um, understand and grasp what he is describing here as the beauty of Christ. But note John's response to this in verse 17. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That response, the response of humility, right? The majesty and glory caused John to fall on his face as though dead. Awe and fear struck him and caused him to prostrate himself at the feet of Jesus. Now, friend, I, I want to just pause for another moment here and ask us, ourselves another question. When is it? that your knees have bowed before Christ? Literally. When is it that you have humbled yourself before Him in awe of His glory? Um, I would encourage you by way of some manner of practice, um, maybe even this week, uh, to take just one hour of your time and set it aside, and and set aside your to-do list, and set aside the worries of life, and set aside the things that, that maybe are you're tempted to be consumed with, um, and and just reflect upon the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ. Uh, it may be that you want to prostrate yourself it may be that you want to physically represent what ought to be certainly the posture of your heart of humility and of of reverence and to to acknowledge him and and to at least be on your knees or to, to some way uh, reflect the heart of, of John here in the midst of response because it ought to be our response when we when we have some glimpse and some way of understanding the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ for us to, 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 to be in awe and to, to respond with a sense of, of reverence. Um, so maybe this week, even just taking one hour and, and, and seeking to, to live this out, and if you've never done that before, it may feel odd, and that's okay. Um, but to, to, uh, to take a step And humbling yourself before Christ and bowing that knee. Um, And I love what is the tender response of our Savior. Notice what Jesus does. In all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his might, what did he do? He laid his right hand on John. You know how comforting a touch is, right? Uh, We know that. How comforting it is when somebody reaches out and why we shake hands when we greet each other. It's something further than just a hi or a hello. There's something about that. There's something about a, a hand on a shoulder in a time of, of distress that brings comfort, right? There's something about even a hug, you know? We, we know the importance of touch. And and it rhy- reminded me as I was reflecting on it this week of one of, I think, that what I appreciate most deeply about Jesus and one of the, the healing scenes we have in the Gospels is when the leper comes to him and he says to Jesus, if you are willing, right, you can, you can make me clean. And, and Jesus could have just spoke the words. He could have stayed at a distance like everybody else would have. They all would have scattered when the leper came, right? But what did Jesus do? No, he stepped toward him. What did Jesus, Jesus reached out and touched him? I am willing, be clean. And in this moment, he, he doesn't just say comforting words to John. He reaches out and he touches John. Uh, what a what a tender scene. The beauty and the mat. And this is what we have to try and wrap our minds around as followers of Christ. That, that Jesus is not just great and glorious and grand and and majestic, but but he's also our tender. Savior. He's the one who's with us in the midst of life. And he's the one who says, as he says to John here, fear not. Fear not. More than 350 times in the word of God, we we are commanded to fear not because he's with us. Why? Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I, I am it. Everything happens within me. He says, I am the living one. I have died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Everybody say forevermore. Forever. Forevermore, right? I am alive, and I have the keys of death and Hades. There's nothing stronger or greater than him. He is victorious, and we know that without the resurrection, our faith is futile. It's worthless. The resurrection is the distinctive truth about Jesus, our resurrected Savior, and that's what he reminds John of as he's tenderly comforting him in this moment. Possession of keys, right, means ownership, means authority, means power, control, and he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades, uh, reminding us that not even death is greater than our Savior. He has conquered death. He's victorious. So just appreciate, if you would, this morning, as we think about this, the, the, the tender response of our Savior. And, and try to, in some way, uh, take that into your own life of realizing whatever circumstance you're in, friend, whatever hardship it may be, whatever challenge that there may be that seems overwhelming, that Jesus is just saying to you right now, He's, 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 he's reaching down, he's, he's touching you, He's, he's, he's with you very much so in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and saying, fear not. Fear not. I'm with you. And he tells John then to write, therefore, verse 19, kind of a central theme of of the book of Revelation. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So kind of a, Summary of the book, if you will, the things that you have seen, John, write it down. Write what you, uh, the things that are, things that are present, and then the things that are to take place. That's the nature of this revelation. And in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Again, we'll talk a bit more about that when we get into the specific letters to the churches next week. But I want to finish by asking the question, so what? What a great scene, what a beautiful picture. Um, And I want to encourage us just with the fact this is our glorious, exalted, risen Savior, the one who is with you, with us, the one with power to calm our fears because he is the risen Lord and holds power over all that is. Humble yourself, friend. Stand in awe. Fall on your face. Surrender your life to him. And experience the, the joy and, and the life that there is in Christ Jesus. The king. The one who reigns on high. Amen. The first and the last. Amen. Um, all-consuming one there's just such a picture here and and there's nothing for us to liken it to that we know of in life there's there's nothing we can try to i mean john tries to use these descriptions his hair was white like wool right like snow and so on to, to, to help us understand um and and but yet we know uh god is far beyond um what we experience in this world. And so may we do our best. May we pause in life to reflect and prayerfully consider the wonderful, uh, beautiful, glorious uh, Savior uh, that we serve, the one who loves us and has given himself for us. Amen. And uh, may that be comfort to us. So, Father, as we think about these things today, may our hearts be comforted. May our hearts be struck with a sense of awe and of beauty and glory, Lord, that is revealed here how you showed yourself to John and what you called him to do was to write it down and to deliver it to these believers who lived in that first century, but Lord, believing too that uh, it was written down for our sake, for our understanding today. and So may we receive it as you desire, may it humble us, may it cause us to be comforted and to live in the midst of the peace that it grants to us. Um, Lord, I pray for someone here today who maybe has not um, given their life to Christ, Lord, I pray that um, today would be that day as they contemplate what is here, Lord, that they would see their need for a Savior. They would humble themselves and stop fighting in pride the message of the gospel. They would acknowledge their sin and their need of a Savior. And today they would confess Christ. So, Lord, work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.